Welcome to All Things Eerie, a collection of spooky tales brought to you by the Nashville Public Library. Here we welcome the unwelcome, try to settle the unsettling, and play host to the undeparted, the undead, and shall we say, the unreasonable. As we enter the land of shadows and uncertainty, the twilight of your imagination, relax while we pull aside the curtain. Indeed, lift the veil of the secret and unknown. And don't look around too much. It's bad for the nerves. Pull your blanket tight around you and make way for this evening's selection. Welcome back to All Things Eerie and the conclusion of Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla. We continue this evening with General Spielsdorf's strange narration of the death of his niece and his desire to bring a violent end to the monster who took her life. He identifies the monster as Mirkala, the Countess of Karnstein, then further identifies her as the young woman Melaka, who befriended his niece Bertha, and our story takes some lurid twists and turns all the way to the end, which you think you may already know, but we have yet a few surprises in store. And now, turn down the lights and join us for the conclusion of Carmilla by Sheridan Le Fanu, chapters 13 through 16. General Spielsdorf continued his tale. There soon, however, appeared some drawbacks. In the first place, Melaka complained of extreme languor, the weakness that remained after her late illness, and she never emerged from her room till the afternoon was pretty far advanced. In the next place, it was accidentally discovered, although she always locked her door on the inside and never disturbed the key from its place till she admitted the maid to assist at her toilet that she was undoubtedly sometimes absent from her room in the very early morning, and at various times later in the day, before she wished it to be understood that she was stirring. She was repeatedly seen from the windows of the Schloss, in the first faint gray of the morning, walking through the trees, in an easterly direction, and looking like a person in a trance. This convinced me that she walked in her sleep— but this hypothesis did not solve the puzzle. How did she pass out from her room, leaving the door locked on the inside? How did she escape from the house without unbarring door or window? In the midst of my perplexities, an anxiety of a far more urgent kind presented itself. My dear child began to lose her looks and health, and that in a manner so mysterious and even horrible that I became thoroughly frightened. She was at first visited by appalling dreams, then, as she fancied, by a specter, sometimes resembling Malaka, sometimes in the shape of a beast, indistinctly seen, walking round the foot of her bed, from side to side. Lastly came sensations, one not unpleasant but very peculiar, she said, resembled the flow of an icy stream against her breast. At a later time she felt something like a pair of large needles pierce her, a little below the throat, with a very sharp pain. A few nights after followed a gradual and convulsive sense of strangulation. Then came unconsciousness. 
I could hear distinctly every word the kind old general was saying, because by this time we were driving upon the short grass that spreads on either side of the road as you approach the roofless village, which had not shown the smoke of a chimney for more than half a century. You may guess how strangely I felt as I heard my own symptoms, so exactly described in those which had been experienced by the poor girl who, but for the catastrophe which followed, would have been at that moment a visitor at my father's chateau. You may suppose also how I felt as I heard him detail habits and mysterious peculiarities which were, in fact, those of our beautiful guest, Carmilla. A vista opened in the forest. We were on a sudden under the chimneys and gables of the ruined village, and the towers and battlements of the dismantled castle, round which gigantic trees are grouped, overhung us from a slight eminence. In a frightened dream I got down from the carriage, and in silence, for we had each abundant matter for thinking. We soon mounted the ascent and were among the spacious chambers, winding stairs and dark corridors of the castle. "'And this was once the palatial residence of the Karnsteins,' said the old general at length, as from a great window he looked out across the village and saw the wide, undulating expanse of forest. "'It was a bad family, and here its blood-stained annals were written,' he continued. It is hard that they should, after death, continue to plague the human race with their atrocious lusts. That is the chapel of the Karnsteins, down there. He pointed down to the gray walls of the Gothic building, partly visible through the foliage, a little way down the steep. And I hear the axe of a woodman, he said, busy among the trees that surround it. He possibly may give us the information of which I am in search and point out the grave of Mercalla, Countess of Karnstein. These rustics preserve the local traditions of great families, whose stories die out among the rich and titled so soon as the families themselves become extinct. We have a portrait at home of Mercalla, the Countess Karnstein. Should you like to see it? asked my father. Time enough, dear friend replied the general. I believe that I have seen the original, and one motive which has led me to you earlier than I had at first intended was to explore the chapel which we are now approaching. What? See the Countess Mircalla? exclaimed my father. Why, she has been dead more than a century. Not so dead as you fancy, I am told, answered the general. I confess, general, you puzzle me utterly, replied my father, looking at him, I fancied, for a moment with the return of the suspicion I detected before. But although there was anger and detestation at times in the old general's manner, there was nothing flighty. There remains to me, he said, as we passed under the heavy arch of the Gothic church, for its dimensions would have justified it being so styled. But one object which can interest me during the few years that remain to me on earth, and that is to wreak on her the vengeance which, I thank God, may still be accomplished by a mortal arm. What vengeance can you mean? asked my father, in increasing amazement. I mean to decapitate the monster, he answered with a fierce flush, 
and a stamp that echoed mournfully through the hollow ruin, and his clenched hand was at the same moment raised, as if it grasped the handle of an axe, which he shook it ferociously in the air. What? exclaimed my father, more than ever bewildered. To strike her head off. Cut her head off? I, with a hatchet, with a spade, or with anything that can cleave through her murderous throat. You shall hear, he answered, trembling with rage, and hurrying forward, he said, That beam will answer for a seat. Your dear child is fatigued. Let her be seated, and I will, in a few sentences, close my dreadful story. The squared block of wood which lay on the grass-grown pavement of the chapel formed a bench on which I was very glad to seat myself, and in the meantime the general called to the woodman, who had been removing some boughs which leaned upon the old walls, and, axe in hand, the hardy old fellow stood before us. He could not tell us anything of these monuments, but there was an old man, he said, a ranger of this forest, at present sojourning in the house of the priest about two miles away, who could point out every monument of the old Karnstein family, and, for a trifle, he undertook to bring him back with him, if we would lend him one of our horses, in little more than half an hour. "'Have you been long employed about this forest?' asked my father of the old man. "'I have been a woodman here,' he answered in his patois, under the forester, all my days, so has my father before me, and so on, as many generations as I can count up. I could show you the very house in the village here, in which my ancestors lived. How came the village to be deserted? asked the general. It was troubled by revenants, sir. Several were tracked to their graves. They're detected by the usual tests, and extinguished in the usual way by decapitation, by the stake, and by burning, but not until many of the villagers were killed. But after all these proceedings according to law, he continued, so many graves opened and so many vampires deprived of their horrible animation, the village was not relieved. But a Moravian nobleman, who happened to be traveling this way, heard how matters were, and being skilled— as many people are in his country, in such affairs, he offered to deliver the village from its tormentor. He did so thus. There being a bright moon that night, he ascended shortly after sunset the towers of the chapel here, from whence he could distinctly see the churchyard beneath him. You can see it from that window. From this point he watched until he saw the vampire come out of his grave, and place near it the linen clothes in which he had been folded, and then glide away towards the village to plague its inhabitants. The stranger, having seen all this, came down from the steeple, took the linen wrappings of the vampire, and carried them up to the top of the tower, which he again mounted. When the vampire returned from his prowlings and missed his clothes, he cried furiously to the Moravian, whom he saw at the summit of the tower, and who, in reply, beckoned him to ascend and take them. Whereupon the vampire, accepting his invitation, began to climb the steeple, and so soon as he had reached the battlements, the Moravian, with a stroke of his sword, clove his skull in twain, hurling him down to the churchyard, whither, descending by the winding stairs, the stranger followed and cut his head off, 
and next day delivered it and the body to the villagers, who duly impaled them and burnt them. This Moravian nobleman had authority from the then head of the family to remove the tomb of Mircalla, Countess Karnstein, which he did effectually, so that in a little while its site was quite forgotten. "'Can you point out where it stood?' asked the general eagerly. The forester shook his head and smiled. "'Not a living soul could tell you that now,' he said. "'Besides, they say her body was removed, but no one is sure of that either.' Having thus spoken, as time pressed, he dropped his axe and departed, leaving us to hear the remainder of the general's strange story. Chapter 14 The Meeting My beloved child, General Spielsdorf resumed, was now growing rapidly worse. The physician who attended her had failed to produce the slightest impression on her disease, for such I then supposed it to be. He saw my alarm and suggested a consultation. I called in an abler physician, from Graz. Several days elapsed before he arrived. He was a good and pious as well as a learned man. Having seen my poor ward together, they withdrew to my library to confer and discuss— I, from the adjoining room where I awaited their summons, heard these two gentlemen's voices raised in something sharper than a strictly philosophical discussion. I knocked at the door and entered. I found the old physician from Graz maintaining his theory. His rival was combating it with undisguised ridicule, accompanied with bursts of laughter. This unseemly manifestation subsided and the altercation ended on my entrance. "'Sir,' said my first physician, "'my learned brother seems to think that you want a conjurer and not a doctor.' "'Pardon me,' said the old physician from Gratz, looking displeased. "'I shall state my own view of the case in my own way another time. "'I grieve, Monsieur le Général, that by my skill in science I can be of no use. "'Before I go I shall do myself the honor to suggest something to you.' He seemed thoughtful and sat down at a table and began to write. Profoundly disappointed, I made my bow, and as I turned to go, the other doctor pointed over his shoulder to his companion who was writing, and then, with a shrug, significantly touched his forehead. This consultation, then, left me precisely where I was. I walked out onto the grounds, all but distracted. The doctor from Gratz in ten or fifteen minutes overtook me. He apologized for having followed me, but said that he could not conscientiously take his leave without a few words more. He told me that he could not be mistaken, no natural disease exhibited the same symptoms, and that death was already very near. There remained, however, a day, or possibly two, of life." If the fatal seizure were at once arrested, with great care and skill her strength might possibly return. But all hung now upon the confines of the irrevocable. One more assault might extinguish the last spark of vitality which is, every moment, ready to die. "'And what is the nature of the seizure you speak of?' I entreated. "'I have stated all fully in this note,' 
which I place in your hands upon the distinct condition that you send for the nearest clergyman, and open my letter in his presence, and on no account read it till he is with you. You would despise it else, and it is a matter of life and death. Should the priest fail you then, indeed, you may read it. He asked me, before taking his leave finally, whether I would wish to see a man curiously learned upon the very subject which, after I had read his letter, would probably interest me above all others, and he urged me earnestly to invite him to visit him there, and so took his leave. The ecclesiastic was absent, and I read the letter by myself. At another time, or in another case, it might have excited my ridicule, but into what quackeries will not people rush for a last chance, where all accustomed means have failed, and the life of a beloved object is at stake? Nothing, you will say, could be more absurd than the learned man's letter. It was monstrous enough to have consigned him to a madhouse. He said that the patient was suffering from the visits of a vampire. The punctures which she described as having occurred near the throat were, he insisted, the insertion of those two long, thin, and sharp teeth which, it is well known, are peculiar to vampires. And there could be no doubt, he added, as to the well-defined presence of the small, livid mark which all concurred in describing as that induced by the demon's lips, and every symptom described by the sufferer was in exact conformity with those recorded in every case of a similar visitation. Being myself wholly skeptical as to the existence of any such portent as the vampire— the supernatural theory of the good doctor furnished, in my opinion, but another instance of learning and intelligence oddly associated with some one hallucination. I was so miserable, however, that rather than try nothing, I acted upon the instructions of the letter. I concealed myself in the dark dressing-room that opened upon the poor patient's room, in which a candle was burning— and watched there till she was fast asleep. I stood at the door, peeping through the small crevice, my sword laid on the table beside me, as my directions prescribed, until, a little after one, I saw a large black object, very ill-defined, crawl, as it seemed to me, over the foot of the bed, and swiftly spread itself up to the poor girl's throat, where it swelled in a moment into a great palpitating mass. For a few moments I had stood petrified. I now sprang forward, with my sword in my hand. The black creature suddenly contracted towards the foot of the bed, glided over it, and standing on the floor about a yard below the foot of the bed, with a glare of skulking ferocity and horror fixed on me, I saw Milaka. Speculating I know not what, I struck at her instantly with my sword. But I saw her standing near the door, unscathed. Horrified, I pursued, and struck again. She was gone, and my sword flew to shivers against the door. I can't describe to you all that passed on that horrible night. The whole house was up and stirring. The specter Milaka was gone but her victim was sinking fast, and before the morning dawned, she died. The old general was agitated. We did not speak to him. My father walked to some little distance and began reading the inscriptions on the tombstones, 
and thus occupied, he strolled into the door of a side chapel to prosecute his researches. The general leaned against the wall, dried his eyes, and sighed heavily. I was relieved on hearing the voices of Carmilla and Madame, who were at that moment approaching. The voices died away. In this solitude, having just listened to so strange a story, connected as it was with the great entitled dead, whose monuments were moldering among the dust and ivy round us, and every incident of which bore so awfully upon my own mysterious case. In this haunted spot, darkened by the towering foliage that rose on every side, dense and high above its noiseless walls, a horror began to steal over me, and my heart sank as I thought that my friends were, after all, not about to enter and disturb this triste and ominous scene. The old general's eyes were fixed on the ground as he leaned with his hand upon the basement of a shattered monument. Under a narrow, arched doorway, surmounted by one of those demoniacal grotesques in which the cynical and ghastly fancy of old Gothic carving delights, I saw very gladly the beautiful face and figure of Carmilla enter the shadowy chapel. I was just about to rise and speak, and nodded smiling in an answer to her peculiarly engaging smile, when with a cry the old man by my side caught up the woodman's hatchet and started forward. On seeing him a brutalized change came over her features. It was an instantaneous and horrible transformation as she made a crouching step backwards. Before I could utter a scream, he struck at her with all his force, but she dived under his blow, and unscathed, caught him in her tiny grasp by the wrist. He struggled for a moment to release his arm, but his hand opened, the axe fell to the ground, and the girl was gone. He staggered against the wall. His gray hair stood upon his head, and a moisture shone over his face, as if he were at the point of death. The frightful scene had passed in a moment. The first thing I recollect after is Madame standing before me and impatiently repeating again and again the question, Where is Mademoiselle Carmilla? I answered at length, I don't know. I can't tell. She went there. And I pointed to the door through which Madame had just entered. Only a minute or two since but I had been standing there in the passage ever since Mademoiselle Carmilla entered, and she did not return. She then began to call, Carmilla, through every door and passage and from the windows, but no answer came. She called herself Carmilla, asked the general, still agitated. Carmilla, yes, I answered. Aye, he said, that is Milarka. That is the same person who long ago was called Mircalla, Countess Karnstein. Depart from this accursed ground, my poor child, as quickly as you can. Drive to the clergyman's house and stay there till we come. Be gone. May you never behold Carmilla more. You will not find her here. Chapter 15 Ordeal and Execution As the general spoke, one of the strangest-looking men I ever beheld entered the chapel at the door through which Carmilla had made her entrance and her exit. He was tall, 
narrow-chested, stooping, with high shoulders, and dressed in black. His face was brown and dried in with deep furrows. He wore an oddly-shaped hat with a broad leaf. His hair, long and grizzled, hung on his shoulders. He wore a pair of gold spectacles and walked slowly with an odd, shambling gait, with his face sometimes turned up to the sky and sometimes bowed down towards the ground, seeming to wear a perpetual smile. His long, thin arms were swinging, and his lank hands, in old black gloves ever so much too wide for them, waving and gesticulating in utter abstraction. "'The very man!' exclaimed the general, advancing with manifest delight. "'My dear Baron, how happy I am to see you! I had no hope of meeting you so soon!' He signed to my father, who had by this time returned, and leading the fantastic old gentleman, whom he called the Baron, to meet him. He introduced him formally, and they at once entered into earnest conversation. The stranger took a roll of paper from his pocket— and spread it on the worn surface of a tomb that stood by. He had a pencil case in his fingers, with which he traced imaginary lines from point to point on the paper, which from their often glancing from it together at certain points of the building, I concluded to be a plan of the chapel. He accompanied what I may term his lecture with occasional readings from a dirty little book whose yellow leaves were closely written over. They sauntered together down the side aisle, opposite to the spot where I was standing, conversing as they went. Then they began measuring distances by paces, and finally they all stood together, facing a piece of the side wall, which they began to examine with great minuteness, pulling off the ivy that clung over it, and wrapping the plaster with the ends of their sticks, scraping here and knocking there. At length they ascertained the existence of a broad marble tablet with letters carved in relief upon it. With the assistance of the woodman, who soon returned, a monumental inscription and carved escutcheon were disclosed. They proved to be those of the long-lost monument of Mercalla, Countess Karnstein. The old general, though not, I fear, given to the praying mood, raised his hands and eyes to heaven in mute thanksgiving for some moments. Tomorrow, I heard him say, the commissioner will be here, and the inquisition will be held according to law. Then turning to the old man with the gold spectacles, whom I have described, he shook him warmly by both hands and said, Baron, how can I thank you? How can we all thank you? You will have delivered this region from a plague that has scourged its inhabitants for more than a century. The horrible enemy, thank God, is at last tracked. My father led the stranger aside, and the general followed. I know that he had led them out of hearing, that he might relate my case, and I saw them glance often quickly at me as the discussion proceeded. My father came to me, kissed me again and again, and leading me from the chapel, said, It is time to return, but before we go home we must add to our party the good priest, who lives but a little way from this, and persuade him to accompany us to the Schloss. In this quest we were successful, and I was glad, being unspeakably fatigued when we reached home. 
but my satisfaction was changed to dismay on discovering that there were no tidings of Carmilla. Of the scene that had occurred in the ruined chapel, no explanation was offered to me, and it was clear that it was a secret which my father for the present determined to keep from me. The sinister absence of Carmilla made the remembrance of the scene more horrible to me. The arrangements for the night were singular. Two servants and Madame were to sit up in my room that night, and the ecclesiastic with my father kept watch in the adjoining dressing room. The priest had performed certain solemn rites that night, the purport of which I did not understand, any more than I comprehended the reason of this extraordinary precaution taken for my safety during sleep. I saw all clearly a few days later. The disappearance of Carmilla was followed by the discontinuance of my nightly sufferings. You have heard, no doubt, of the appalling superstition that prevails in Upper and Lower Styria, in Moravia, Silesia, in Turkish Serbia, in Poland, and even in Russia, the superstition, so we must call it, of the vampire. If human testimony, taken with every care and solemnity, judicially, before commissions innumerable, each consisting of many members, all chosen for integrity and intelligence, and constituting reports more voluminous, perhaps, than exist upon any one other class of cases, is worth anything. It is difficult to deny or even to doubt the existence of such a phenomenon as the vampire. For my part, I have heard no theory by which to explain what I myself have witnessed and experienced, other than that supplied by the ancient and well-attested belief of the country. The next day the formal proceedings took place in the chapel of Karnstein. The grave of the Countess Mercala was opened, and the general and my father recognized each his perfidious and beautiful guest in the face now disclosed to view. The features, though a hundred and fifty years had passed since her funeral, were tinted with the warmth of life. Her eyes were open, no cadaverous smell exhaled from the coffin. The two medical men, one officially present, the other on the part of the promoter of the inquiry, attested the marvelous fact that there was a faint but appreciable respiration and a corresponding action of the heart. The limbs were perfectly flexible, the flesh elastic, and the leaden coffin floated with blood, in which to a depth of seven inches the body lay immersed. Here, then, were all the admitted signs and proofs of vampirism. The body, therefore, in accordance with the ancient practice, was raised and a sharp stake driven through the heart of the vampire, who uttered a piercing shriek at the moment, in all respects such as might escape from a living person in the last agony. Then the head was struck off, and a torrent of blood flowed from the severed neck. The body and head was next placed on a pile of wood and reduced to ashes, which were thrown upon the river and borne away and that territory has never since been plagued by the visits of a vampire. My father has a copy of the report of the Imperial Commission, with the signatures of all who were present at these proceedings, attached in verification of the statement. It is from this official paper that I have summarized my account of this last shocking scene. Chapter 16 Conclusion
I write all this, you suppose, with composure, but far from it. I cannot think of it without agitation. Nothing but your earnest desire so repeatedly expressed could have induced me to sit down to a task that has unstrung my nerves for months to come and reinduced a shadow of the unspeakable horror which years after my deliverance continued to make my days and nights dreadful and solitude insupportably terrific. Let me add a word or two about that quaint Baron Vordenberg, to whose curious lore we were indebted for the discovery of the Countess Mercalla's grave. He had taken up his abode in Graz, where, living upon a mere pittance, which was all that remained to him of the once princely estates of his family in Upper Styria, he devoted himself to the minute and laborious investigation of the marvelously authenticated tradition of vampirism. He had at his fingers' ends all the great and little works upon the subject. Magia Postuma, Phlegon de Mirabilibus, Augustinus de Cura Promortuis, Philosophici e Christiani Cogitationes de Vampiris by John Christopher Herrenberg, and a thousand others, among which I remember only a few of those which he lent to my father. He had a voluminous digest of all the judicial cases, from which he had extracted a system of principles that appeared to govern some always, and others occasionally only, the condition of the vampire. I may mention in passing that the deadly pallor attributed to that sort of revenance is a mere melodramatic fiction. They present in the grave, and when they show themselves in human society, the appearance of healthy life. When disclosed to light in their coffins, they exhibit all the symptoms that are enumerated as those which proved the vampire life of the long-dead Countess Karnstein. How they escape from their graves and return to them for certain hours every day, without displacing the clay or leaving any trace of disturbance in the state of the coffin or the cerements, has always been admitted to be utterly inexplicable. The amphibious existence of the vampire is sustained by daily renewed slumber in the grave. Its horrible lust for living blood supplies the vigor of its waking existence. The vampire is prone to be fascinated with an engrossing vehemence resembling the passion of love by particular persons. In pursuit of these it will exercise inexhaustible patience and stratagem, for access to a particular object may be obstructed in a hundred ways. It will never desist until it has satiated its passion and drained the very life of its coveted victim. But it will, in these cases, husband and protract its murderous enjoyment with the refinement of an epicure and heighten it by the gradual approaches of an artful courtship. In these cases it seems to yearn for something like sympathy and consent. In ordinary ones it goes direct to its object, overpowers with violence, and strangles and exhausts often at a single feast. The vampire is, apparently, subject, in certain situations, to special conditions. In the particular instance of which I have given you a relation, Mercala seemed to be limited to a name which, if not her real one, should at least reproduce, without the omission or addition of a single letter, those, as we say, anagrammatically, which compose it. Carmilla did this, so did Melaka. My father related to the Baron Vordenberg, 
who remained with us for two or three weeks after the expulsion of Carmilla, the story about the Moravian nobleman and the vampire at Karnstein Churchyard. And then he asked the baron how he had discovered the exact position of the long-concealed tomb of the Countess Mircalla. The baron's grotesque features puckered up into a mysterious smile. He looked down, still smiling, on his worn spectacle case and fumbled with it. Then looking up, he said, I have many journals and other papers written by that remarkable man. The most curious among them is one treating of the visit of which you speak, to Karnstein. The tradition, of course, discolors and distorts a little. He might have been termed a Moravian nobleman, for he had changed his abode to that territory and was, beside, a noble. But he was, in truth, a native of Upper Styria. It is enough to say that in very early youth he had been a passionate and favored lover of the beautiful Mercalla, Countess Karnstein. Her early death plunged him into inconsolable grief. It is the nature of vampires to increase and multiply, but according to an ascertained and ghostly law. Assume, at starting, a territory perfectly free from that pest. How does it begin, and how does it multiply itself? I will tell you. A person, more or less wicked, puts an end to himself. A suicide under certain circumstances becomes a vampire. That specter visits living people in their slumbers. They die, and almost invariably, in their grave, develop into vampires. This happened in the case of the beautiful Mercalla, who was haunted by one of those demons. My ancestor, Vordenberg, whose title I still bear, soon discovered this, and in the course of the studies to which he devoted himself, learned a great deal more. Among other things, he concluded that suspicion of vampirism would probably fall, sooner or later, upon the dead countess, who in life had been his idol. He conceived a horror, be she what she might, of her remains being profaned by the outrage of a posthumous execution. He has left a curious paper to prove that the vampire, on its expulsion from its amphibious existence, is projected into a far more horrible life, and he resolved to save his once-beloved Mercalla from this. He adopted the stratagem of a journey here, a pretended removal of her remains, and a real obliteration of her monument. When age had stolen upon him, and from the veil of years he looked back on the scenes he was leaving, he considered, in a different spirit, what he had done, and a horror took possession of him. He made the tracings and notes which have guided me to this very spot, and drew up a confession of the deception that he had practiced. If he had intended any further action in this matter, death prevented him, and the hand of a remote descendant has, too late for many, directed the pursuit to the lair of the beast. We talked a little more, and among other things he said was this. One sign of the vampire is the power of the hand. The slender hand of Mercala closed like a vice of steel on the general's wrist when he raised the hatchet to strike. But its power is not confined to its grasp. It leaves a numbness in the limb it seizes, which is slowly, if ever, recovered from. The following spring my father took me on a tour through Italy. 
we remained away for more than a year. It was long before the terror of recent events subsided, and to this hour the image of Carmilla returns to memory with ambiguous alternations, sometimes the playful, languid, beautiful girl, sometimes the writhing fiend I saw in the ruined church, and often from a reverie I have started, fancying I heard the light step of Carmilla at the drawing-room door. Thanks for being with us and for listening to All Things Eerie. For more shivers, stories, and episodes, visit the Nashville Public Library website at library.nashville.org. Original music for this podcast is by Dawn Northwind and was produced and recorded by Adam D. Art design is by Allison Price. NPL Studio Engineering is by Forrest Eagle. All of whom, with me, send their very best wishes to you for a very good night.